Welcome to the Foxy Podcast. Bi monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 86 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there wherever you're listening from. Behind me right now, you're hearing the opening track off of the latest Mark Barron release called Crooked Dances, which just came out recently on Penultimate Press. And for this installment of the podcast show, we have put together a special feature devoted to the work of Penultimate Press, both as a label and as a finely stocked mail-order outlet. Run by Mark Harwood out of London, Penultimate Press has been active for the past five years or so, issuing crucial archival and reissue works alongside more contemporary releases from artists working in that gray area between electroacoustic composition, sound art, and other avant-garde practices. Harwood, though, has a long history of working in this area of music, going back to the mid-90s with his label and shop called Synesthesia that he ran in Melbourne, Australia. On this show, I talk with Mark about his past, present, and future surrounding Penultimate Press. We discuss the extensive Jacques Brodier release that he's been working on for a couple of years and is due out in the coming weeks. And we also discuss his own sound work that he has been recording under the name Aster. Mark was also kind enough to include some music that he's been enjoying of late throughout this show and to lend his adept audio editing skills to, as you'll hear, put a personalized stamp on our interview segments. But before we get to all of that, though, we'll start off with a fairly broad sampling of tracks from throughout the Penultimate Press catalog starting here with the title track from Matthew P. Hopkins' Blue Lit Half Breath.
So um, Penultimate Press, uh, it's not your first foray into running a label or mail-order outlet. You had run a label and shop in Australia for several years called Synesthesia, uh, well before Penultimate Press was you know, up and running. Could you provide some background on, on running that label and shop? I mean, did the, did the label come first? Was it a mail order first? Uh, how did that all come about? Uh, that one, yeah, in Australia, that was a, a mail order first. Uh, and it was that thing of just... Uh, I, I was quite young at that time when I did that, so I did a mail order. I went to Europe and I saw these record stores and I saw these records in actual record stores and nobody was getting them in Australia. And I was mail ordering a lot from the usual suspects at that point in time uh, in large quantities. So I remember I was bulk buying these things. And then I decided to, you know, uh, provide a mail order thing for other people in Australia to access this material. And then I think that went well for a couple of years. And then it was annoying because people were knocking on my door to collect records or buy records. And it was just becoming more frequent. And I remember having dinner once and some customer came in. So we... I decided to move it to a shop. I got offered a space in Melbourne, which was really cheap, super cheap. So it was viable for me to do. And then it turned into a shop. And I think everything just happens by accident that I do. I don't really plan these things. And somehow <laughs> somehow a, a label developed. I think, I can't even remember how that started. Maybe just local artists appeared because there was quite a scene in Australia then and still exists. And so there was no way where they were being published or not enough places, so I think I did that. Um, yeah, you know, in a way, the thing with what I did in Australia in Synesthesia is that it was an open, open-ended experimental outlet. It was basically introducing kind of recorded experimental music to Australia because at the point in time where I started, there really wasn't anything at all. There was, there was alternative rock and there was, you know, but there was nothing really way out there. So it was a very broad range experimental music shop from historical stuff to whatever was happening back then, etc., etc. Um That's a big difference between what I do now, which is a mo- lot more um, stubborn or, or, or narrow-minded in a positive way. So, you know, you had mentioned traveling to the UK and coming across some of these shops and discovering things. You know, how were you, aside from that, I mean, how were you connecting and discovering some of the avant-garde, electroacoustic things and stuff like that, um, that you were bringing into the the label and shop? I mean, without having access to, say, like, the internet, because I'm sure you were starting up well before that. Yeah, I mean, the internet wasn't around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, halfway through the shop, the internet appeared. So that's a different story. Uh, but just just by getting those mail order catalogs from places like Artware and Anomalous and uh, RRR, obviously, and Forced Exposure and Forced Exposure magazine, like everybody in my generation, had a huge impact on me. Uh, I also had friends. I, remember, I met Oren Ambachi when I was very young. And he was the first person I met that knew about this kind of music and I knew about it. And so we, I've got a lot of letters. We used to write to each other and ex- exchange knowledge of what we had discovered. And then at that point, he was running the What Is Music Festival in Australia with Robbie Avonheim. And I started helping them with that festival. And, you know, through that festival, people came to Australia. And the information's, you know, dispersed. But it's literally, I've got letters handwritten to various people around the world. That's quite, that's quite funny. 
Uh, yeah, so I mean that that was it really, and then you know you, you know what it's like. You you buy an AMM music CD reissue on REI, and you read the liner notes, and then you've got other things to follow up after that. You know, liner liner notes in records, or is another way to find out about you know whatever it is. Very reminiscent of my youth as well. You, <laughs> the thank yeah. yous and the and the mentions yeah. within that. That's how you were discovering things. Yeah. Exactly. Well, in a recent interview that you had uh, done for uh, for Damning Fanzine, you had mentioned that after you moved from Australia to the UK, that it was the discovery of Graham Lampkin's work that in quite a few ways kind of prompted you um, to get back into publishing again after you closed up shop. Um, you know, as someone who had followed so much music, you know, what was it about his work that you found so compelling at the time? You know, I moved to London and it was kind of hard to set up here and I was still enthusiastic about music, but having run that business in Australia for 10 years, I was exhausted as well. Uh, and I, I, I think there was a point where I, I, I didn't really think there was a lot new happening or stuff appearing that I wasn't so familiar with where they were coming from, all the sounds that appeared or whatever it is. And then I heard Salmon Run by Graham. I saw it in a tiny mixtapes end of year list and I listened to the sample and I ordered it. And, and I really, it really felt like hearing something that you've never heard before. It, even though obviously the actual material, as, you, as we all know, is very recognisable because it's within the classical domain. But the construct of what he did, I, I just didn't understand in the slightest. And that was really exciting. And I still feel the same way about what Graham does or whatever. It's always completely perplexing, surprising, uh, challenging and entertaining, you know. Uh, so that was, that was, yeah, that definitely opened up a lot, uh, that listening to Graham's CD. And I made contact with him through the mail and we kind of became friends. And I think I proposed to him after a while of us chatting online to publish some of his poems and writings, which he'd sent me a, a little book once when he sent me a package and there was some inside. And I really liked those lyrics to the Shadow Ring records and the later ones especially. And, and... And that, that, that's how that started. And that's how Penultimate Press started. I mean, when I moved to London, the last thing I wanted to do was get involved in this music. I was like, I'm free, I'm on the other side of the world, I'm going to be something else. You know, I could be like, a, you know, captain of a ship. I, you know, the world was my oyster. But because of Graham Lampkin, I ended up back here, square one. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, your label and his, you know, Kai Records has really sort of... Uh, developed alongside one another's um you know i mean i guess that that interaction between the two and the dialogue that you've had has certainly provided a fuel for what you were doing with with penultimate press yeah yeah i mean that's all that again this has all happened by accident i mean i guess we you know egg each other on or push each other but i was you know you start something i didn't have a plan and then just by the sheer act of doing one thing it can lead to another thing and then it can lead to another and i think we're both found that to be the case, you know, because there's often, I don't know what's coming up next, I don't know what I'm going to put out, and then something will appear, you know. So uh, the, the fact that myself and Graham are quite active with releasing records that somehow correlate on occasion, I don't think was planned, but I think it's more that we just get along and we have similar tastes. I mean, we, we exchange a lot of music with each other, and Graham's told me about a lot of music from the past, and I... You know, he's, I don't think he's ever sent me a dud record. He, the, the guy knows everything and very, very obscure things. And, and you know, 
this continues to this day. It's nice. So we just have similar tastes. We're from the similar social economic background. We've both got the same uh, sardonic wit, I guess. And and it's it's funny. Yeah, it makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> Well, with Penultimate Press, you know, you have struck a, a very nice balance between issuing work um, from newer artists uh, and then to going back with these like older archival or reissue projects. And I'd like to talk about just maybe a couple of the more recent or forthcoming archival things that you've done. Um, you know, you've just put out the second of three and I, I want to say Etant Donnie's and I know that's horrible <laughs> pronunciation there, but uh, the second of three reissues. Um, that you're doing, um, you know, were these releases conceived as some type of trilogy back in, in the early '90s when they came out, or was this just something that you thought uh, there was something there sonically and conceptually that sort of bound this work together as a nice reissue project? Uh, no, I, I think I think the brothers had en envisaged it as a trilogy at the start. It was just released on different labels over. You know, a period, but uh, you know those those records in particular are their field recording based works, and there's not a lot in their catalogue that utilised field recordings. There's a lot electronics and noise and all kinds of things in their catalogue, but these are the only ones that specifically framed around field recordings. And and you know, there's a, there was a, this thing of field recordings is weird because those are actually in the field as such. It's insects and it's definitely in that kind of classical tradition of field recordings. But it's just the way they're EQ'd and the pacing and the looping and the whatever. It's, it makes them incredibly special. And I thought that, that all these idiots, sorry, all these, all these people like Chris Watson and ever getting this claim, I thought that this, these records are kind of important that they don't get lost within that genre or within that kind of field of working. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're being hard, those records, because of the nature of the material so extreme that it was difficult to put on vinyl. We had problems with the first one. We had problems with the second one. But, you know, I'm happy that they exist and we're happy we got through. But they haven't been easy uh, to, to, to put out on vinyl. Yeah, it's funny, that one. Is it just because of the, the detailed nature of the recordings themselves that you've had issues sort of capturing uh, the fullness of sound? The, uh, yeah, the yeah, that's the thing. I mean, a, a CD is my preferred medium, and you can capture everything, but unfortunately the audience generally wants vinyl, and, and it was hard to put, yeah, the, the, the full you know, breadth of the sound onto a vinyl. But, it, but they actually sound really great in the end. It was just we had test pressings and rejected them and all that kind of thing.
Well, the, the, there's a forthcoming Jacques Brodier uh, double album, uh, and this is even more kind of a comprehensive uh, undertaking that you've uh, ventured into here in many respects. You know, where were the sounds of this? I mean, you had to like comb through so much of his stuff. I mean, you have his writing, his artwork, there's recordings, uh, most of this being unpublished uh, from my understanding. I mean, could you describe what it's been like kind of under or uncovering actually the, the world of Brodier and, and the work that's went into this release? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, how much time have we got? That's that's been a, a, a pretty large project. I met I met Jacques, I think about four years ago. When I met when I met him for that initial record that I put out, he gave me some CDs of recording. We got along well, and at the end of the day, he gave me some CDs, and it had I think about seven eight hours of material to select from. So I chose some of that for the first record, etc., and that all went well. And then this one. It took some time to get him to agree to do another record. I mean, this this one has it's been a couple of years for me to try and get this finished. It's it's been an enormous job. This one, I wanted to do another record. He he sent me a short excerpt. I think last year, late last year, it was about a minute and twenty seconds because he had added a part to the machine, which is basically like like it's a glass like a turntable, but it's made of glass, and then you put sand on it, and when you and it rotates like a turntable, and it's got a sensor light attached to it, and when you put your fingers through the sand, it'll change the frequencies. So he sent me that, and I said, oh, well, that sounds really good, because you could hear... Because the machine that he makes, the filter of reality, is constantly being adapted, and it has for over 40 years. So every time he does changes, there's different kind of sounds. So the record is quite diverse, even though it's all from the same kind of setup. Because of these adaptations, it's quite... You'll hear it when you hear the whole record. Uh, so then I wanted to get some new recordings, and it took a while for him to send those to me, but there's some uh, things he did this year. And then... When I went to his house, I saw, I remember when I was leaving, I just looked at, you know, around over my shoulder up his stairs and I just saw thousands of paintings. It's crazy how much stuff there is. Uh, so he's, he sent me images. I actually just got the final booklet today, this morning. <laughs> but it looks, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty special for sure. I mean, I've really enjoyed working on that project. And again, I think Jacques Bordier is, I'm, I feel very fortunate to be able to publish those works. Um, I know people have tried and it's just such an important world to be recognized as existing. And so, you know, if I, I contacted him and it's been worth the years of work because I really feel that his world has to be shown to the world that we live in. It's, it's incredible. Right. And that, and that project is very, it should come out very, very soon. Right? Yeah. I think I get the records in, I think in the third week of October and it's a very kind of, it's it's the, definitely the most ambitious thing I've done of being double gatefold, double record gatefold sleeve, this quite quite substantial booklet and just the sonic material itself. So, yeah, in a few weeks' time, it's going to be a busy end of year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on top of that, I mean, is there anything else that you want to mention that you have kind of on deck to to round out the year for Penultimate Press? I might do I might do one more record this year, but I'm not going to say what that is at this point in time because I want to do that thing what like these popular R&B people do where they just like drop a record at midnight and everybody goes fucking crazy. So oh, slight interruption here uh, after this interview was recorded, uh, having contact with the vinyl plants, the turnover time does not allow me to release anything this year. To be honest, that's fine. Should we start this set with something from uh, Jacques Brodier? Yeah, definitely, yeah. All right, so here's a track from this uh, forthcoming release. Uh, do it on penultimate press here very soon. 
Well, having moved away uh, from running a record shop, uh, you know, what was it that made you want to get back into doing something like that again with the mail order side of things uh, with the Penultimate Press website? I mean, how how has your move to London contributed to that? When I was working in Australia, it was a situation where it was quite underexposed music. So it was fairly easy to represent experimental music or work within that field. Uh, and when I got to London, everything had everything was existing. You know, there was nothing different, really. Like every kind of music was covered and distributed. There was a really good record store here, Second Layer. Um, there was another record store. There was a venue. You know, it was kind of... That's the same thing. When I heard Graham's thing, I thought I was, uh, recordings, I was like, wow, these are really wild and different. So I was, that was the first time I kind of saw something where I thought it was occurring that was completely unique and wasn't entering into this country or this side of the world. Uh, so that was just fortuitous or whatever. Uh, so then so then I started stocking Kai, because at that point, Graham started putting out more records. And so I he was putting out a Shadow Ring compilation. And so I said, I'll grab copies of that. I think I got five, five copies or something, or ten copies. And, and they sold. And again, it just went from there. And then... Other labels started appearing that I, you know, I also felt like I had some kind of correlation with or some kind of uh, sympathy with what they were putting out. And it's, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a scene, but there's definitely like a, a, a family or people with a common understanding kind of putting out things, including yourself. Those tapes you sent me this week are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that just, you know, again, it, I never structure anything. I've always just like started something and then let it evolve in its own way. And I think that happened with my business in Australia. And I think that's happened with this. And, and, it's, and it's very, very nice. I like that. You know, there's no kind of forced conceit. It's, it's just organically occurred over time. And I think there's enough people, as you know, worldwide that are kind of keeping this alive or supporting it or enthusiastic. And this is the best case scenario. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I see that you have quite a few ties to like Cafe Auto. And, and that place seems to be such a like an epicenter of a lot of this activity. I mean, uh, the music that's coming through that place is phenomenal. I don't know if there's anything like it in the world. Tell us about um, your involvement or just being in and around that uh, venue. Alongside Panotto Press, I actually work at Cafe Otto, but uh, in a, on a freelance basis, two days a week. And here I do, do kind of what I do at home, but I do for, for them. And that's they, they have a small record shop in the venue, and I stock the record shop, so I select the records. Oh. And they also have a record label, Roku, which I also uh, look after the production and manufacturing of their record label. So I have my record label and mail order, and they have their shop and record label, and I run them all. Okay. Yeah, uh, and then and then it's been fantastic. It's been great working with uh, Cafe Otto. I mean, it's an incredible place. The owners are absolutely amazing people. It's all done in what I consider a correct fashion. Uh, it's a ridiculous amount of good people who come through and play. Uh, it's 10 minutes from my house, and I get half-priced beers because I work here. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so an fun. ideal situation, then. Huh? So it's, it's nice. It's nice. I mean, it's crazy because there's so much stuff that goes on here. It's never-ending, but it's also great. I mean, I'm looking at Christian Vander as I talk now out the window, which is pretty funny. But, but Surreal, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, it's really nice. I mean, Philip Philip Corner played here this week, and that was really wonderful as well. So, that's not my baby, by the way. 
um, yeah, it, it's it's special, and I don't think there is anywhere else like it in the world because it's it's a gig every it's a gig every night of the week, which is kind of cozy. Well, how you know how do you see yourself as a listener or as a fan of music compared to or now compared to when you started Synesthesia? I mean, do you feel like your relationship with music and sound has changed um, thinking back to when you started that? Uh, some elements of my listening habits have definitely stayed the same, whilst there's also changes. Um, you know, I used to be more interested in kind of, yeah, thrilling, shockingly different music, you know, in a way. Uh, but now, it's, there's definitely, a, I've got a lot of a softer, <laughs> a softer way of listening to things. So, uh, and, and, and also, it's the same way that I operate with the record label is I don't really exist in a particular medium and I don't exist in a particular time. I just think that I might hear something incredible from whatever period, whatever style of music. I think most music is pretty bad, but within everything there's some really strange and unique things. So I, I, kind of, I think you'd be surprised. If we sat down and had a beer in my house and I played some records, you'd be surprised what I listened to. But... Uh, <laughs> but, 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 but but I, I, I still listen to a lot of music. My friends were actually hustling me on the weekend saying that I'm a total maniac. And, and then I got, you know, I started to get self-conscious. And then last night I was out with the same friends and saw, saw myself <laughs> taking over the player and playing lots of different music. But, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's fun. It, it takes me out of this, you know, sometimes horrible planet and it makes me think in a way it's a nice thing. Well, what are some of the newer discoveries that have you know perked up your ears of late? Uh, you know, be it things that you're you're stocking through Penultimate Press, the mail order side of things, or just things that you know you've been that you've caught at Cafe Auto or what have you. Yeah, there, there was you know Cafe Auto's funny because the, the last thing I saw here was a band called Modern Institute, but that was because of the performance side of it, this wild performance. I kind of like in live music, these performative aspects, so they, they, they were great like that, which was last weekend. Um, I, I do listen to a lot of stuff with my record label or things that I'm working on, so I've been listening to this, these two new cassettes by Oni O'Dwyer, really like the cassettes that she's just released, especially yeah. Locust, so I think it's fantastic and I offer to reissue that for her on vinyl, um, and I think I might do that next year because I think that's really fantastic.
there was a there was an exhibition at Tate here involving um, these men who had made their own instruments, and I I, I was fortunate to be asked to perform on these really wild handmade instruments, and I became friends with one of those artists, and he works with three other guys in France, and they've all built their own instruments and have made this incredible record, which is also recorded in the church, ironically. And, and it's utilising all these kind of, they're, they're predominantly acoustic, but they also use like oscillators and things in weird ways. Um, so I've been listening to that record because we're kind of like in the, in, the means of, in, the, in the middle of editing or working out what to do with the material they recorded.
Uh, the Mosquitoes 7 inch is something that appeared this year and I like that as well. Uh, I currently managed to get some copies and have in the mail order so I'll play a track off that now.
another one which isn't something that I stock or have released, which I like, is this French outfit Underarm Musical Instant. And I had a lot of fun with this track last weekend.
So if I'm connecting the dots uh, correctly uh, using Discogs as my guide, uh, you had actually recorded under the name Quackenzacher uh, well before you started using the moniker Aster. Uh, describe you know, what the, the early material was like compared to maybe what you've been doing uh, with Aster. And was that out of that was how essentially Aster was born? 
Yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah, again, it's 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 absolutely through my correspondence with Graham, and he was he was great because I'd send him some stuff, and he'd say, "This is a piece of shit. This is good, and this is, you know, th this part is good," and he'd it would be really fantastic. And then, and then he kindly offered to put out my first record on Kai, and we put it under Astor because he because I was publishing his books. We were talking about nepotism, you know. So let's put under this mysterious moniker and blah blah blah. <laughs> and then it took about seven weeks to everybody say, "Oh, it's Harwood. What are you clowns doing?" Uh, so, so that's that's really how that came about. But I've enjoyed making music and playing shows and all these kind of things. It's been really fun. I really enjoyed that a lot. And I'd imagine that you know, since starting that, a lot of your work, I mean, is there's kind of a back and forth between what you're doing with the label, um, and 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 publishing other people's work. How that kind of both feeds the beast uh, in terms of your own work to some extent. Yeah, it's it's nice. It, I like that as well. I like that it's a, it's a record label I run and there's a mail order and there's the music that I produce myself and that they all are crossing into each other and sliding along with each other and these weird kind of tangents and threads keep appearing in my work and others and, you know, again, none of this is planned but I, you know, sometimes I'm surprised that, that, that this is occurring but but it's it's all a part of this enormously weird strands that are out there and how they cross over with each other. Right, right. Well, your most recent album uh, that you put out, uh, is it Lena and Nita? You know, it saw you really heading off in, in a bit of a new direction sonically where it was more electronic-based, uh, mo it's more melodic uh, in certain respects. You know, were you or are you becoming more interested in moving away from this sort of heavily uh, field recordings-based approach? And I don't... I'm. I'm using air quotes there. It's not, I know that's not the entirety of how your uh, your sound is, but I mean, moving into something that's maybe uh, a more musical direction. Somebody had emailed me, and I think it was regarding an interview or something, and they, they, they put a uh, field recording artist or something, and I didn't like that. <laughs> In a lot of the early interviews I did or whatever, there was focus on the field recordings and because, you know, maybe somebody picked up there's a sound of a hummingbird or something, I don't know, but but the the basic reason I made that last record like that is because I was playing around with my iPad and I, I accidentally made one of those tracks and then I was like, oh, this is hilarious, you know, I can, you know, just play, play around with the most simple things in the world and and then I liked it out of that. It, 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 you know, it was a, it, that was a pretty wild year, that year, and, and it became quite dark and quite kind of slow and murky and you know, I was I was trying to do uh, low David Bowie. If anybody hasn't picked up on that, but yeah, I was trying to do low, and then it, and then and then I kind of messed all that up, so it became something else. But but it, I, I don't think I would make another you know electronic record and and or necessarily musical record. I'm not sure. I, I'm working on material all the time, and and I I've been doing a lot of work with a, a friend of mine here, Leah, who plays cello. Uh, and other things. We've been doing some recordings together, which I'm quite happy with. I think there's something there. Um, and then there's material that I'll probably use on one of my next records. And, you know, the bulk of that material is acoustic and it, it's oh. it's quite nice, but it's not. It's definitely not field recording and it's not electronic. So I, I, I did, before the last Astor record, I had actually made a third record, which I thought sounded too much like the first two records. Mm. Uh, so I actually just trashed it, you know, and started again, and then I made that last record. I, so wanted to, I, I wanted to challenge myself, and I also wanted to do less editing. I wanted to see the last track on that last record has one edit in the piece, 
And I love that edit, it's my favourite, I was trying to rip off. But, but that, that was a conscious decision to, can I challenge myself to make a record without relying on editing? And there was, the fact that I got to the point where there was one track with one edit I was quite happy with. So it's just challenging my way of the process of how I make music and just totally putting a rupture in that and seeing what I can do after that. I like to <laughs> okay. present myself in that. So uh, you, you mentioned the new recordings. Is this something that's going to be quite a bit uh, down the road or you have some stuff coming out uh, relatively soon for Aster's work? Uh, yeah, I think the Astor stuff won't be won't be until Isn't next year. Um, yeah, that, that that's a while off. I think. I think. I think this collaboration with my friend here will be sooner. Hello. 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 Because I played some Hello. concerts, and I, in my concerts, I was trying to get the, an audience member involved, and then in, when I toured Italy, I got the entire audience involved, and then I, I was I did a tour with Graham Lampkin. We played three shows together. And then I've done shows with other friends of mine here. And I've got more into a more collaborative thing. Uh, I, 
Yeah, so I think I, maybe I'll move more into that area as well of collaborating with like-minded people or opening myself up a bit in that way. And then an Astor record at some point after I go through that. Well, maybe we should round off with that uh, Aster track that you mentioned that has limited editing. We'll close out uh, the show with that. Yeah, great. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, uh, Mark, for your time. Okay, thank you, David.